I saw your be good baker running by again the other day, says I to old Mr. Brennan. Ah, yes, says he. I've never seen her stand still. And she's running rings around the rest of us with our Brennan's be good bread. Only 60 calories a slice. 60 calories, says I. That's just a whole meal, is it? No, says he. It's the whole meal, the whole grain, and the waste. 60 calories a slice and high in fiber, whatever way it slices. That's why anything baked is better with Brennan's. Today's bread today. On this week's Big Tech Show, Ireland's biggest drone delivery company looks set to cover Dublin by the end of the year. MANA boss Bobby Healy tells us about his goal to be one of the biggest companies in the world. We want to win big here. We don't want to be one player of a 500 different drone companies. We want to be the biggest thing the world has ever seen. We want to be in every single suburban household on the planet. To do that, you start with things that are high adoption, high frequency products. You go straight to the coffees and the takeaway food. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, uh, Sam here. Today on the Indo Daily. From billionaire CEO to banged up in the Bahamas, the 72 hours that changed the life of crypto whiz kid Sam Bankman Fried. Just over a month ago, he was riding high, a billionaire many times over. Well, tonight, he's in jail in the Bahamas. Known simply as SBF, he founded one of the most important crypto companies in the world at the age of just 27. The privately held crypto exchange brought in just over a billion dollars in revenue for 2021. That was up more than a thousand percent. At one point, the company was valued at more than $20 billion and Bankman-Fried was listed as one of the world's richest people under the age of 30. However, that was all about to change in the space of just three days when police arrested him at his mansion in the Bahamas. Look, I should have been on top of this and I feel really, really bad and regretful that I wasn't and a lot of people got hurt and that, that's on me. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Joshua Oliver, reporter with the Financial Times, to explain the story of Sam Bankman-Fried. What is he alleged to have done? And more importantly, the billions of customers' dollars that went through his cryptocurrency exchange company and disappeared. Joshua, before we get into the world of cryptocurrency and FTX, who is Sam Bankman-Fried? Sam is American. He's born in California, son of two law professors at Stanford University. And it's probably fair to say pretty much a classic nerd. I mean, he's a you know math guy. He went to national math camp and then uh, ended up at MIT studying physics and maths. He's uh, you know, very unconventional, you know, always preferred shorts and a t-shirt to any kind of formal clothes, even when he was doing quite formal things, a big video gamer, somewhat notorious now for you know playing video games when he was also at the same time on Zoom calls with big investors or speaking to lawmakers in the, in the United States. So yeah, total kind of video game fanatic and, um, and, and math geek. And so obviously he's a very, very clever guy. He decides to get into the world of finance. How does that start? Yeah, he basically followed what, you know, in the early stages, a pretty normal path into into finance. He didn't start it in crypto. He started it on Wall Street. And, um, you know, for a, a math and physics graduate at MIT, it's it's not such an unusual thing to do. He went to work at um, Jane Street, which is a big kind of blue chip Wall Street trading firm. 
and so you know was basically following kind of a normal route from uh, you know his academic studies into trading and did he make money quickly like how does that come together for those of us who work in things like the media and don't fully understand the world of finance how quickly can you become a player in that world at Jane Street, he was pretty junior. So, I mean, he was making a good wage by any normal standards, certainly compared to us in the media. But it was not, you know, the type of position where he was doing big things on his own and going to make his millions. But he was really only there for a very short period. And then he kind of drifted out of finance for a minute before he started to really make money. And so he had this little detour, which is quite interesting, into basically the world of philanthropy. He went to work at an organization called the Center for Effective Altruism. Sam has, in a very short period of time, gone from just being a person who believed in effective altruism to being perhaps the world's leading practitioner of earning money to give it away. Which is philanthropic movement that's all about kind of, you know, giving as much money as you can and giving it according to certain principles. So he, he went into the charity sector and that was a, where he, you know, he picked up this um, set of philanthropic beliefs that were kind of key part of his public image all the way through. Um, but again, that was quite a short detour. Um, and as he, you know, described it to me once, you know, he was kind of working at this charity nonprofit during the day and spending all night trading, basically. And it was at, you know, in that at that time, you know, in the late nights that he really stumbled across the world of cryptocurrency. Well, before we get there, I need you to, in the most simplistic terms you can, Joshua, without uh, insulting my intelligence, explain <laughs> cryptocurrency, because that's going to be a very important part of this story. Cryptocurrency, in, in kind of simple terms, I mean, we're just talking about digital assets, so assets that are, are created as, you know, items of computer code. They're, they're tracked on a computer using, you know, the blockchain technology that lots of people have probably heard of. And I guess what, what makes it a cryptocurrency or a digital asset is that it's not connected to anything in the real world. You know, if you if you own a normal asset like a, a, I mean, a house, that's obvious, or a share in a company, well, that's related to a company that has stores or factories or does something. And cryptocurrencies are assets that just sort of float there in cyberspace. And really, they're, they are worth what someone else will pay for them, but with no backing of anything in the in the real world, um, which allows them to kind of be very volatile. I mean, sometimes they'll be worth huge amounts if, if they're really hot and people are willing to, you know, give you a lot of dollars for these digital tokens. And that can also evaporate really quickly. So Sam gets into this world and he is one of those who seems to make huge amounts of money from it. How did he go about that? The privately held crypto exchange brought in just over a billion dollars in revenue for 2021. That was up more than a thousand percent in a year. And as of the first quarter, it was on pace for a similar run rate for 2022, about one point one billion dollars. It was also profitable. Operating income was two hundred and seventy two million with twenty seven percent margins. Yeah, there's there's debate about how much money he made at the beginning, um, but certainly, you know, more than I'm ever likely to see. And the first thing that he did was use his Wall Street knowledge to kind of exploit some of the ways that crypto markets used to work that were kind of rickety, as it were. Um, basically, the price that was quoted for different cryptocurrencies would be really different in different countries um, because the markets were not linked up globally. And so if you bought in a country where cryptocurrencies were cheap, and you sold in a country where cryptocurrencies were expensive, 
you made a tidy little profit, which in finance they call arbitrage. So that was the first trade that Sam is known for. And this kind of became the basis of the, you know, the legend of Sam Bankman-Fried was that he had, you know, initially spotted this opportunity and like a number of other people gone into it and been particularly successful in, you know, using that traditional finance knowledge to wring some money out of cryptocurrency. And he founded this company called FTX. Yeah, so he he first founded a company called Alameda Research, and, and both of the two companies are important. Alameda Research came first in, in 2017. He was very young, just a small group of friends, and they marketed themselves as kind of this crypto trading shop that was going to be the best of the best. And then two years later, they went on to found um, FTX, which is the crypto exchange in 2019. And... How do you, we'll talk about the money involved here first, but when you set up companies like this, how do you start to attract investors, uh, people that will actually trust you with money? Because while we're talking about cryptocurrency, we're talking about big figures. Yeah, you're absolutely talking about, you know, big sums of money. At that that stage, you know, crypto was starting to get pretty popular, pretty hot. So, you know, it, it wasn't that tricky to find investors who were at least curious about this kind of thing. We're talking about a lot of the same kind of, you know, Silicon Valley investors who would have backed internet startups, you know, in previous years, people were starting to think, well, is crypto the next big thing? Do I, am I going to get left behind if I haven't invested in this? And so, you know, just like everyday people have that famous kind of fear of missing out, I think big investors do too. And at one point, Sam described himself as one of the most effective fundraisers ever. I mean, I think that was some ego on his part, but he certainly was pretty good at this. And you would, like any other company, go around and, and pitch to investors and convince them that crypto was the next big technology. It was going to be as big as the internet. And I'm giving you this amazing opportunity to invest early. And that was really appealing to some people. Okay, so, so far, so good. He sounds like a good financer, a good salesman. How much was he worth before we get to the plot twist? <laughs> uh, yes, before we get to the plot twist, the, the peak value of his company was $32 billion, which was given to him in January of this year, so not that long ago. That was the value of the whole company. He didn't own the whole thing, but he did also own other companies and other assets. So, you know, you're always slightly guessing with these net worth figures, but it's, you know, somewhere in the region of 20 to $25 billion. And at that point, what kind of a lifestyle is he living? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, you're, you're talking figures there that we associate with the likes of Elon Musk and people like that. So had this guy who was playing computer games developed this kind of big tech, big finance persona? Well, um, in a way, yeah, yes and no. I mean, he was always very unusual. And, you know, he was still definitely playing those computer games, but I mean, probably playing them in a much nicer house. Um, he really cultivated this persona that was different from your typical rich kid. Um, you know, they did have quite a bit of luxury in the way that they lived. Um, so they'd moved the company. FTX was started in Hong Kong. They moved it to the Bahamas. And, you know, they were living in a $30 million luxury apartment in this very snazzy gated community. But he's living there with, you know, at sometimes as many as, you know, eight or nine other roommates. So it's kind of this weird contrast between an incredibly luxurious surrounding, you know, they're spending tons of money on this property, but they're still kind of living in it like college dorm, basically, with as many as 10 people all sharing this apartment, all living together, and they're all people who work together. So there's no separation between work and, and home, and they're all kind of living on top of each other. Um, 
and you know sam is also very rarely even goes home he's kind of part of his legend was he, he barely sleeps he likes to sleep in the office sometimes he sleeps in a bean bag you can find pictures of that online um and so he would you know he would be working almost all day and then maybe you know conk out for a couple of hours um and then just next to his desk and then wake up and go back to work so they were spending a lot of money and there was you know luxury in the picture but they were still you know living this life very much of hardcore coders and and finance geeks okay it sounds like a really really bad sitcom from the 90s but <laughs> but the humor has gone out of it because well, you lay it out. What happened in November? Because this all came crumbling incredibly fast. Incredibly fast. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing for, for many, many people. In the last month, all of this has collapsed. The business is in bankruptcy and his once $16 billion fortune has collapsed essentially to nothing. I think the, the seeds of it go back quite a long way. And, and one of the key events along the road that led to ruin for um, FTX was in the spring of this year. Um, people may remember, you know, there was a big crypto crash, um, loads of money was being lost. And it looked at that time like, you know, FTX was doing okay. But what we've now learned is that in the background, there were lots of losses. And they really, since the spring, they were trying to paper over the cracks. And that was that was going okay until in November, you had the kind of first um, nail in the coffin, which was a report by Coindesk, which is a, um, a crypto news website, about the financial state of Alameda, which is the trading firm that Sam still owns. It's a sister firm of FTX. And this report showed that the finances at, at Alameda were way weaker than anybody had um, known. And so suddenly there is this wave of fear about maybe this company that we thought was super solid is actually in a lot of trouble. Look, I really deeply wish that I had taken like a lot more responsibility for understanding what the details were of what was going on there. I knew that legal was involved. I knew that other groups at the company were involved, that you know there were agreements drafted up. That's a big problem for a company like FTX because it takes customer deposits like a bank, which means it's subject to a bank run, which is you know exactly what started to unfold. There's you know, fear built on fear. People wanted their money back because they didn't trust them anymore, and they thought they were going to lose, you know, lose their cash. And as they started to ask for more and more money, that those withdrawals mounted up into the billions, and FTX simply did not have the cash to pay them back all at once, and that required them to freeze withdrawals and and file for bankruptcy. And it also revealed what I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, which is this money had gone somewhere, and the reason that they weren't able to pay people back, you know, is the money was gone. And that was what started the, you know, the concerns about um, a very, very significant fraud. It has a kind of a strange, like, it sounds almost like you're describing the, the economic crash of a decade or a little more ago and Lehman's Brothers and all that. But this is all centered on one company and largely one guy. So what has been uncovered about the way the company was run? Because it's, it's kind of staggering that this many people could put these millions and billions into it. And it could all fall apart in pretty much, what, three days? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if customers feel bad that they, you know, they were taken in and they trusted their money to someone, um, they can get some comfort from the fact maybe that, you know, it was not just customers. It was all these big investors who were also investing in into FTX and not noticing. Do we know any of the people who had put money in? 
In terms of the the investors in FTX, yeah. So, um, you know, some big names, uh, Sequoia Capital, which is a big Silicon Valley um, venture capital firm, BlackRock, one of the world's largest asset managers, um, Temasek, which is an investment company um, related to the government of Singapore. Um, and there was also a um, Canadian teacher's pension plan that, that put money in. That's just a few of them. But, you know, these are big, serious investors who are thought of as being very sophisticated. And so what was SBF doing? I mean, in short, and here we get into the, you know, the realm of contested facts. Inside a heavily secured courthouse in the Bahamas this morning, 30-year-old Sam Bankman-Fried, arrested and disgraced, was denied bail and signaled he'd fight extradition to the U.S. This is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Where the Justice Department charged Bankman-Fried with numerous financial crimes, including wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering. The allegations against SBF are that customer money that was deposited on FTX and should have been kept as deposits, never touched, just held in trust for the customer, was basically taken, handed over to Alameda, who then spent it on all manner of things, including investments in you know other cryptocurrencies, investments in other companies, um, spending on political donations, spending on property, you know, luxury apartments in the Bahamas. And that, you know, through various mechanisms, basically, the, the money that people thought was just sitting there as their own money being entrusted to FTX was actually being frittered away on all sorts of luxuries. And what has happened since that then, Joshua? What is the fallout from all of this? Yeah, the fallout was, um, you know, a little bit slow in coming, but extremely dramatic when it came. And this is just this week. On Monday, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas, and that was at the request of U.S. authorities. Um, so U.S. you know federal prosecutors had filed criminal charges against him, and asked the you know Bahamas police to go and, and arrest him, and they will um, we expect seek his extradition to the United States to face those charges in court. So you have criminal charges of um, fraud, and then you also have two big Wall Street regulators in the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, both on the same day filing their own charges, which are very extensive. Again, you know, of fraud, detailing all the ways in which the executives of the company were lying to their investors, lying to their customers, and taking the money and, and spending it on all sorts of things. So again, th these are still charges. There's going to be a process to try and prove them, but Sim is now facing the, the worst that the U.S. legal system could throw at him. Up to 115 years, I read in some reports. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And that's obviously, you know, the extreme maximum. It could be much less than that. He could get off. But if he's convicted, it's going to be, you know, a very serious sentence or if not a life sentence. And it's likely that a trial would be in New York where they have they have history with doing this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the prosecutors who brought the charges are the, the, you know, the Southern District of New York, which is the federal prosecutors who are located in, you know, Manhattan, the financial center of, you know, the United States and most of the world. So, you know, these are the top people in terms of bringing prosecutions for financial crimes and the ones who, you know, if you see them kind of come knocking at your door as a financial criminal, that is bad news. These are the people who are going to get you. So he's absolutely going to be, you know, up against the top prosecutors in the United States. So he's facing that a criminal situation, possible long time in jail. But there's a lot of people left with egg on their face as well on the back of this. 
he was one of the largest Democratic donors, I believe, during Joe Biden's presidential campaign in 2020. And there was a whole host of celebrity endorsements for this along the way as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, very embarrassing for people who accepted political donations. There is some dispute about how predominantly that was going to Democrats. There's some suggestion that maybe he was also donating to Republicans, but we don't really know um, how true that is. We do know, obviously, a lot of um, politicians facing calls that maybe they should hand this money back. Um, so far, that's not happening. But, you know, anybody who was associated with him, obviously, is you know, got some explaining to do. And the investors as well. I mean, all of these supposedly top investors who gave him their money. And then you also mentioned the kind of celebrity factor. Um, FTX paid you know, absolute fortunes to an, you know, a number of sports personalities, celebrities to endorse the exchange, to appear in advertising. And those people, a number of them are already facing a class action lawsuit by investors saying, you helped to promote this company and we've lost our money. These types of lawsuits are, they take a really long time and you know, by no means guaranteed that the you know, the investors are going to win. Um, but it's absolutely, you know, a huge black eye for, for all of these people who are associated with the collapse. Finally, Josh, you, you said earlier that you met him. Were you taken in by SBF? I didn't suspect at the time that I met him um, the full extent of what was wrong. Absolutely. We always take a skeptical approach to people as as journalists. That's our job. So I did not think that he was the savior of um, you know finance and the architect of the next great financial system. But I will stand up and say, I did not realize quite the extent of the wrongdoing that was potentially going on. Joshua Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced and researched by Garrett Mulhall with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips were from CNBC, CNN, BBC, MSNBC, Good Morning America, Bloomberg and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.